This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Lucy Smith. Welcome to another episode of Science with Dr. Carl. In this week's episode, we get into some curly questions like, when you die, what's better for the environment, being cremated or buried? Is vaping less damaging than cigarettes? And when you hurt yourself, does rubbing it better actually do anything to help? Let's get into it. Carl, you watched The Irishman over the weekend and you've had some major revelations. What's going on? Mate, I've gone down the rabbit hole. I now understand who killed Kennedy and why. So I've never seen The Irishman, so I probably should. What, what, yeah. what can you tell me about it and how you've come to this? Well, the first thing when you turn it on to watch it is you, it runs for three hours and 15 oh. minutes. Oh, my God. I mean, what's that all about? Surely a movie runs for one and a half hours, maybe two times, but three hours and 15, we had to watch it in three goes, okay? Secondly, there's a little bit of, it was only made five years ago, a little bit of electronic de-aging of the heroes, uh, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. But thirdly, it took me down the rabbit hole and by the end I was convinced... And, and this was you know, a great experience to feel emotionally. I knew who had killed President Kennedy and why. And the people, according to the movie, because yeah, I really got sucked down this rabbit hole, according to the movie, it was the mafia who had worked with Kennedy's father in the early days in Boston in the 1920s and helped him get wealthy during Prohibition. And so they had close ties and helped him get re-elected, according to the movie, by um, getting dead people to vote uh, artificially on the, on the rolls oh. by going through the... Yeah, OK, all, uh, all those allegations, right? So I'm, I'm believing that because I've gone down the rabbit hole. And then um, Kennedy was their big mate, but really what the mafia wanted was that they wanted to get back into Cuba. And so that's why Kennedy had the Bay of Pigs thing. But at the at the same time, his brother, Robert Kennedy, was the Attorney General of the United States and started hammering the mafia. Okay, here's where it goes weird. Um, so I was totally convinced that the mafia killed Kennedy so that his brother would no longer be the Attorney General of the United States. And when he still remained as the Attorney General of the United States, they killed him too. Ah. Okay, that's an example of how a supposedly rational person went down the rabbit hole. Maybe it's because I watched it for three hours and 15 minutes instead of one and a half hours. I don't know. It was, but, it was a big part of your world. Did you find yourself going on, you know, were you looking it up? Were you reading articles? Were you watching videos? No, because all you're going to be doing is getting other people's opinions over and over. And the fact that it's written in nice font on a, a computer screen doesn't mean anything. So if you walk past somebody and they're lying on the ground in a pile of their own vomit and they throw a bit of paper at you which has got written on it, Kennedy was killed by the mafia, you'll go rubbish. But if it's a nice glossy movie, <laughs> the same data, you suddenly start believing that it's true. So I was careful not to go down that pathway. And I think the bottom line is, um, I don't know. Don't um, get completely sucked in. Well, that's um, <laughs> Lee texting in saying, the Irishman, three hours of my life, I'll never get back. Did you like the film? Yeah, I, I like learning some of the jargon. Um, and some of the jargon is, you know, Lucy, I'm, I'm a little concerned about certain things. By that I mean I am really, really concerned. And, uh, oh, you know, Lucy, I'm, I'm more than a little concerned. That means you've got to kill somebody. Yeah. And then when you finally decide to kill somebody and somebody's arguing for them to come back, you say, oh, it is what it is. Oh, my God, it's not, it is what it is. <laughs> so I'm learning all the inside You've got to read between the lines. Oh, oh yeah. So I think that's part of going for the conspiracy theories that you 
are now one of those people who has the secret knowledge that nobody else has. All those sheeples, they don't have the secret knowledge, but you and I, because we saw the movie The Irishman, we have the secret knowledge. You know, you've seen it. You're you're beyond the matrix. I love that. We've got Brady here. Um, Dr. Carl's movie club. I want to start it. We've got Brady <laughs> here from the Sunshine Coast. Shall we kick it off, Dr. Carl? Dr. Brady, we're here for you. Let's do it. Brady, what's your question? Dr. Carl, Dr. Lucy, how are we? Hi, good, thanks, good. Thank you. Um, so I've got a question. My boss told me the other day, and I haven't been able to get it out of my head. When you look at a spoon, um, the way, on the face you eat it off, uh, you're upside down, and then you spin it around the other way, and your reflection's normal. And I just, uh. I don't, I can't understand why, why is that? It is tricky and um, I could do it if I was sitting next to you and we're having a cup of tea with a slice of cake or something nice like that at morning mm. tea. But but you've got to go on to Wikipedia and look up Ray Diagram, R-A-Y di- Diagram, and you, you just draw out the lines running from the top of your head and the bottom of your head and they run onto either the front or the back of the spoon and then they go in different directions and blah, 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 blah. You follow it through. But you've actually got to draw out what's called the ray diagram and then suddenly you see, oh, that's why I'm upside down or that's why I'm the right way up. I cannot do it without the ray diagram and you next to me, uh, Dr Brady. So you I'm need sorry. a visual. We need a visual, man. Okay. okay so go looking it up on, on the internet and a ray diagram of why you're upside down in a spoon, something like that, and then it'll make sense. Ray diagram. Brady, go look it up. Yeah, okay. I'll have to do some homework. <laughs> Bit of homework. Sorry. We love Sorry. it. Alex in Fitzroy, what's your question this morning? Hi, doctors. Um, mm-hmm. My question is, what are the benefits of taking probiotics and prebiotics for gut health? Mm. Um, normally, not a lot. So um, you are roughly half cells that came from your parents and half cells that invaded you after you were born. But these cells, bacteria, are really small. So while they make up roughly half the number of cells that you walk around with, they only make up in your gut maybe in an adult 200, 300 grams. And they are really important, these uh, bacteria in your gut. There's probably a thousand different families. And they, if you did not have them, you would be two-thirds your weight you would eat twice as much and you'd be really weak and sickly. You wouldn't get a lot of nutrition from your food and your immune system would be vaguely cactus. So you need these guys and normally they've evolved to be living with you, you with them, and they can change. So sometimes you can have, for example, bad diarrhoea for a few days due to an infection and a combination of the bacteria coming in, but mainly the flushing out means that the bacterial makeup can change or you might have to take antibiotics. Now, In my case, I've had to have antibiotics on three occasions for cellulitis when I was a car mechanic. And if I hadn't taken them, I would have been a person without two arms and one leg. I would have lost them. But the antibiotics saved me. But at the same time, they can, but not always, interfere with your gut bacteria. So under those circumstances, sometimes prebiotics, probiotics can be useful to help recolonise your gut. Or you might have had something niggling. But for the average healthy person... They're really not a lot of use. It's not like it's going to lift you to 120%. Man, you can't go past 100%. That's all there is. Is that Why were you advised to have them, Dr. Alex? Um, because I've got fructose intolerance. That's a whole complicated question. So what I do is go down the pathway of following Professor Claire Collins at mm. the University of Queensland. Uh, sorry, University of Newcastle. And... 
post something on her Twitter feed and she can give you some real information. So she is somebody who has spent decades studying this sort of stuff. And what she doesn't know, she's got colleagues who do know because there might be one person who spends their whole life doing fructose and they know so much about it and then she can put you in contact with their writings and maybe even with them. Oh, that would be really handy. I just looked her up on Google. Yeah. yeah, Professor Claire Collins, and we'll get her on radio sometime soon so you can ask her again, yeah, personally we'll get her yourself. On ASAP. Yeah, I yeah. know. Anyone, anyone who's ever had to take probiotics during, you know, a course of antibiotics to avoid thrush, mm. get it. You've got to do it. What's the link between thrush and a lack of good bacteria? The bacteria provide a home where things, to quote the um, uh, Irishman, it is what it is. <laughs> so, so, so the bacteria have got a family that is what it is. And the moment you disturb that, something else might move in. And every now and then, the fungus involved with thrush can move in. So you've disturbed the is what it is to make it a different is what it is. And then the bad guys can move in. Mm. Yeah, the bad guys being the FBI, people who want you to pay tax, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> I'm right in there with the conspiracy theory. It's so unfair. All right, Sarah from Broad Beach. Dr. Sarah, what? Dr. Sarah. You got a question about vaping. What's going on? Yeah, so, hey, Dr. Carl, I would just like to know, I feel like vaping is taking over the nation and I want to debunk the myth. Is it actually better for you than smoking a cigarette or is it just as bad and we need to just throw it in the bin? It's less worse, let's put it that way. So if you right. look at somebody vaping on the street, you'll see a cloud of something. You know, there's something interfering with your field of view. They breathe out and then suddenly there's this sort of little mini cloud and then it just vanishes. So what they're yeah. doing is they've got, they're breathing out a gas, they're taking gas into their lungs and they're breathing out a gas but they're not taking in the particles. So that's why it's less worse. So when you're burning a cigarette and sucking on it, you're getting the gases plus you're getting all of these particles and they've been burnt at different temperatures so different chemicals are formed. So if you do something fairly, what used to be harmless in the old days, they thought, just burning off some leaves, you can actually make mm. chemicals called dioxins. In the same way, when you're burning tobacco, you're making all sorts of nasty chemicals. So you're avoiding those with vaping, but you've still got the basic thing going that you're being fed an addictive drug. The other thing is yeah. that um, when the safety standards are not all there yet. And so it all depends where you buy your vaping stuff from. And so there have been cases of people who have bought suboptimal stuff that hasn't been properly tested and they've ended up in hospital and actually died. That's a very tiny minority. Yeah. Bottom line, it's, it's less worse than smoking. Do neither. Right. So ultimately, bad for you. Chuck it in the bin. Yes, please. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sounding like – I'm trying to try that into a conspiracy theory, but I haven't got there yet. <laughs> There's Hanging no longer Irishman for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay, thanks. Dave Woodhead is going to be very disappointed. We've got Will here from Nam. Will, what's your question? Hey guys, is that me? Dr. Will, welcome. Yeah, Will, what's your question? Yeah. There you go. So, um, got a question. Can you artificially create wants or desires? Or is this something that only occurs at the unconscious level and is like beyond our control? Um, both. Uh, so you might have your own particular fetishes, which might be shoes or a person's neck or that sort of thing and you've got no idea why it's there but it just is but secondly you can create them so if for example you for whatever reason end up having less sleep than normal 
Um, firstly, on one level, you interfere with hormones that tell you that you're hungry and how full you are. So there is a tendency where for you to eat more. But also when you're low on sleep, um, part of the brain involved with making rational decisions and that kind of ties in with the amygdala and a few other areas, the rational decision-making bit falls over and so you can find yourself thinking, oh my God, a cheese sandwich with toasted cheese on top of it, then a bit of pizza, then a whole lot of bologna and then put on some more cheese. That's just delicious and you're making irrational decisions. So there's a whole bunch of things that can be involved, either external or internal. Right. So, yeah, is there any way, I guess, in that being able to take on board the external and use that's what you want? So, if that makes sense, can you start making desires for things that you initially initially didn't have a desire for, if that makes sense? Sure. So if you desire, for example, to get more healthy, uh, buy a book by Arnold Schwarzenegger and start reading that and use that as your role model. You, uh, and there's a whole lot of things you can do. There's various psychological techniques. Um, cognitive behaviour therapy is one of them. There's a whole bunch of things that you can do to change your behaviour. It's not an easy pathway, um, but you can do it, yes. Joe in Canberra got a question about the AstraZeneca vaccine. Dr Joe, welcome. Thank you so much. This is Dr. Joe from the bungalow in the Berra. Bangalow in the <laughs> Berra. Nice. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so my question is about the AstraZeneca vaccine and why mm-hmm. they're recommending bringing the second dose earlier. So I was reading an article from March in the Lancet, and from what I can see, after one dose of the vaccine, it seemed to be seventy percent effective from days twenty-two to days ninety, mm-hmm. which would take you to the twelve-week mark. So as far as I could see, there wouldn't be any benefit in bringing it forward um, and as it wouldn't grant any short-term protection and might worsen your long-term protection. There, there are it's a complicated situation because it depends on the environment in which you take it if you had the all the time in the world mate give it the whole time that you need you know the, the couple of months but we don't have all the time so there's basically five levels at which the protection at which protection is given to you firstly protection against being infected and then being able to infect other people and most of the vaccines sit somewhere around 60 to 80% and then the next level is against having mild symptoms and the protection is higher. Severe symptoms requiring hospitalisation. And by the way, yesterday's paper said that one in every 10 people who get Delta go to hospital. But you don't go to hospital because you're feeling yeah. good, right? One in 10. So third stage is getting hospitalised. Third, Fourth stage is an intensive care unit and the fifth stage is death. So it does seem to give you very high protection at the short term with against dying, but not so much against the early ones. So they're, they're, they're weighing up that you'll get a fuller protection against the earlier stages if you wait the full three months. But on the other hand, you might get uh, infected by the actual virus before then and things would be worse. So it's, it's sort of like a juggling act. It's not a perfect world. They're saying we go to war with the army we have, not what we want. So in the case of Norman Swan, he was in a high infective area. So he is a medical doctor and reading the literature like crazy. He reads all of the stuff. He's, that's his full-time job. He actually decided to go voluntarily because of his circumstances from 12 weeks to eight weeks. And if the infection rates keep on ramping up, there might be grounds for going even earlier. Okay, And then there's another factor, which is that the protection provided by the AstraZeneca seems to last longer 
than the protection by the Pfizer. So I think the bottom line is the one I mentioned with regard to the whole victory vic- vaccine victory through chickens. We're going to end up with a situation that everybody on the planet is going to have to get vaccinated roughly every six months for the next half century or so. Yeah, Joe, I got the AstraZeneca vaccine six weeks ago and initially at the time of um, getting it done, I booked for 10 weeks for my second. But then because I'm an essential worker and because I'm coming in to Triple J and still navigating the world and just seeing with this increase in cases, I moved it to six. So I'm actually getting my second dose tomorrow. Joe, were you in a similar situation like that? Um, well, actually, I was I was lucky in, in the fact that um, I'm, a, I'm a healthcare worker and um, in the in the category where I was eligible for Pfizer earlier in the year before the outbreak started. Great. But um, just wondering for like my um, my family and friends. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, moved it to six weeks. I know a few people who have kind of jumped on that just to make sure that they are protected if they are still. Yeah, like you said, Dr. Carl, having to go out, then not being able to self isolate at home fully. Hmm. And that is so hard, like it's just ridiculous. It's easy to be wise, but really we should have had right from the very beginning that if you were infected, uh, firstly you'd go on a register, you'd have a little ankle bracelet and every day somebody would come around with food and you would be paid, I'll pick a number, a thousand bucks a week to stay at home. So, <laughs> you know, because th- that way you could stay at home, but then it's different if you're a single person living in secure accommodation and then a different one is where you're in shared accommodation with a whole bunch of people and there's only one bathroom for five people Mm. and you're not sure of any income and another situation is where you're living in a multi-generational house and you've only got three bathrooms and eight people in the house because if you isolate it's got to be you have your bathroom and your towel and you just hide in that world and food is brought to your door we should have done it that way right from the beginning that you get, you know, you get a thousand bucks a week and all of food delivered to you and a free subscription to the streaming video channel of your choice <laughs> so you can go down into conspiracy theories too. Oh, if only Dr. Carl. We have, uh, we're going to stay in Canberra. We've got Dave here. Dave, what's your question? Dr. Dave, welcome. Hey, doctors. Uh, I was wondering if it was possible to completely lose your sense of humour from like an overexposure to things that were funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um... There's a word for I can't remember or a phrase, but basically if you keep on saying a word over and over like glass of water, that's a phrase, or um, jigsaw or hacksaw, I don't know why I'm talking about tools in the workshop because that's where I am, but if you keep on saying it over and over, after a while it becomes meaningless. And so you need that up and down, that balance of life. And we humans are quite a remarkable creature um, because we can multitask. So sure, we can get beaten at any individual job by a computer, whether it's playing chess or adding up numbers or playing Go. But we humans can walk down the street and talk to another person and uh, lick an ice block and bounce a ball and not fall over and uh, wave to another person on the side of the street. And it's because we've got this sort of flex where we tell each other stories all the time um, and we and as thought to be one of the origins of dreaming or one of the reasons for dreaming that we tell each other stories. So this flexibility is like one of the good factors that we have and part of the price is that you can get overloaded with something so you can sort of get dehumid out of something although I haven't had it happen to me yet. Maybe I haven't been enough to enough comedy shows. What about you, Dr Lucy? I think I've still got it. Dave, do you know anyone? <laughs> Uh, no, not personally. <laughs> Let's hope it never happens. That sounds like a nightmare. We've got Ted here from Coffs Harbour. Ted, uh, what do you D- want to ask Dr. Carl? Ted. How you going? Good, thank you, Dr. Um, Ted. I was wondering if you can grow a full adult human from a newborn baby while it's underwater its whole life, still attached to the umbilical cord. Um, 
Ooh, okay. So if you look at the newborn baby as compared to the adult, in in the newborn baby, the head is about one quarter of the total length, and you're trying mm-hmm. to get the brain out of the birth canal. And the arms and legs is well, the chest is just enough to keep it going for air, and the arms and legs well, they're really short. And then they start growing those in the first couple of years of life. So one reason that you would have difficulty or one pathway would be having difficulty with would be breathing because in the umbilical cord you're getting your blood from your mother and that blood carries oxygen and so your lungs aren't working. And when you leave the ocean or that's inside your mother's tummy, you then start breathing air. So if you're staying underwater, you're not going to be able to get enough oxygen. You can get enough oxygen to survive, but not to do that massive growth needed to grow the arms and the legs. So you'd grow into a different creature. Maybe if you could kept... Hang on, I'm thinking of a science fiction story here. Maybe if you kept the umbilical cord and then had some sort of gill on the end of it and you could extract oxygen from the water so you could stay underwater and that means we could become an ocean-going race and, hey, there's two-thirds of the planet there that we don't normally use but then what if it fell off or something or got broken the big oxygen unit at the end of the umbilical cord uh. ted you better save the rights to this one you could be on the yeah, cusp look. of the next sci-fi franchise yeah nice that the, the adult underwater baby <laughs> we've got pen here from ghana country pen you got a water question dr pen welcome yeah Morning, doctors. Um, so I was just wondering why water turns white when it gets agitated, so like at the bottom of waterfalls and on cresting waves and things. Oh, yeah. Ah, and why are the beer bubbles mm. white when the beer itself is a dark colour? Okay, so we're going to talk about uneven, uh, unequal reflection. So remember in the old days, in the before times, when you used to be able to walk into the city and walk in the streets, and you'd go past a building that had staff on the inside in the daytime. So you go past in the daytime and you can't see the people working behind the glass because you're out in the light where it's really bright and they're under the lights inside, which are quite bright but not as bright as sunlight, so they can see you but you can't see them. But at night it's the other way around. Outside it's quite dark, inside it's still quite bright, so you can look in to them working inside the building, but them, the glass just looks like a mirror. They just see themselves. And that's what's happening with the little bubbles, bubbles of water or bubbles of beer. The water has a certain thickness and it inside is air and that is enough to drop down the amount of light. So the light inside is less. So basically it doesn't matter whether the liquid is brown beer or a really blackish cola or just white water, it still acts as a mirror. And so the outside world is basically whitish from the sky and you've got white light and so you see the bubbles as white. Mind you, if you were ta- to take the bubbles or your waterfall into a nightclub with only red lights, you would see red bubbles. Ooh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. Thank you. We've got a follow-up question here, Dr Carl. We were talking about the length between doses for the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Melissa from Wurundjeri Country said, so if you've had your two vaccines... Do you have to get the same vaccine as a booster or it won't matter? Dynamic feast, we don't know. So follow Norman Swan and Tegan Taylor um, on CoronaCast and it, it does seem that with the viruses mutating, we're going to have to have different vaccines every six months. Now, 
it does also seem that with the mRNA vaccine we'll be able to do that and I'm seeing a situation where further down the line, Melissa, you go to see a GP and the GP says, hi Melissa, I can see from your uh, DNA, they'll have your DNA on file, all of it, and they'll say, um, you, luckily you don't have a tendency to make interleukin-1. Do you see how I dropped in that fancy word? Mm. I, was, I was trying to work out how come people were actually dying from the virus. What, what was going on? And it turns out that for one-fifth of the people who die as a result of getting COVID-19, they kill themselves. There's a chemical called interleukin-1 which then gets triggered into an autoimmune reaction. So the virus triggers the fight, that triggers their own body to kill themselves. This sometimes happens in the flu called the cytokine storm. I don't know about the other four fifths. So the GP, Dr Melissa, will look at your DNA and say, OK, Melissa, you've got some strengths and weaknesses here. And also, um, oh, we've got that bit. Now, let's look at where you live and, you th- and you're going on holidays. And you say, yeah, I'm going to Hawaii for holidays. And they say, OK, there's different varieties of the virus there. And so in years to come, not too far in the future... On the doctor's surgery, using a 3D printer, they will print out a bunch of vaccines tailored for your DNA and where you're going to be in the next six months. And then you'll have to do that for the next six months for the rest of your life. Wow. Um, And the virus will keep going and we'll be protected by our wonderful shields of vaccines for the rest of our lives. Mikey here from Byron Bay. Dr Mikey, what's your question? Uh, Hello. Just wondering with the two-week life cycle, if the whole world was to actually lock down for two weeks and actually prevent any spread, would it actually just disappear on us? Ah, would the COVID disappear? The thing is that it has another reservoir. Dogs, cats, as well as um, mink. Um, So it could always come back. Whereas with the smallpox virus, the only reservoir was humans. And so uh, we went down a pathway and we were able to get rid of it. And I think Frank Fenner, an Australian, was part of the team that helped wipe out the smallpox. And part of the deal was at one stage getting compulsory vaccinations. And it used to be the smallpox killed one in every 10 people who died. Um, and it's just gone now. So with the COVID, unfortunately, it does have other reservoirs. So just going to a complete worldwide lockdown, it would be still living in some animals. And if it was living in bats, it wouldn't harm them. You see, the thing about the bats is that they're the only mammal that flies. And flying is really hard metabolic work. And so they're damaging and destroying their muscle cells. And fragments of muscle and DNA are floating in their bloodstream. So they've got a peculiar live and let live immune system. So they can be invaded by pretty well any virus. And on one hand, it doesn't kill them, but on the other hand, they don't kill the virus. So bats are a well-known store or powerhouse or home for viruses. So they also must be hanging out there as well. Dr. Carl, what's the difference between a pandemic and an epidemic? Um, Pan is across, epi is around. So an epidemic would sort of be around your local town or village or your city or maybe even your country. But a pandemic is the whole world. So pan means, I don't know the actual Greek word, the meaning of the word. So if somebody can let us know, that'd be lovely. Hmm, okay. So we're getting a lot of, we're getting a few COVID questions and we might need to get Tegan Taylor back Mm. on board maybe next week. Tegan Taylor and Norman Swan of Coronacast. You can check it out wherever you get your podcasts, but it's always in when we get it for an hour and you get to ask your questions. So we'll see what happens. We've got Rob here from Rockhampton. Dr. Rob, question about bushfires. Yes, I was just wondering what effect bushfires and the smoke from bushfires has on global warming. 
Well, they're giving off carbon dioxide, so that has a trapping of the heat effect and the heat that it traps comes from the sun. So our current carbon dioxide levels, as compared to those back in 1850 to 1900, they trap each day an extra 400,000 Hiroshima bombs worth of heat every day. Um, Okay, so that's one number. Here's another number. About 37 billion tonnes a year. That's how much carbon dioxide, on average, our planet sort of pumps out into the atmosphere. And the bushfires in Australia were about 1% or 2% of that, which is just a huge number, absolutely enormous. Mm. But on the other hand, if you do burn one-fifth, of all the forests in an entire country, you've got to expect that that has an effect. Yeah, definitely. Now, there is another effect where the uh, smoke will reflect some of the incoming heat. So on that hand, it tends to diminish temporarily the effect, but the carbon dioxide remains. And the other effect is that with the bad air, the death rate from air pollution goes up. So the figures at the moment are that roughly 45 million people every year worldwide die from natural, whatever causes, and about one-fifth of them die as a result of air pollution caused by burning fossil fuels. Wow. Oh, Thanks, Rob. We've got Victoria here from Randwick. Dr Vic, what's your question? Hey, guys. Um, so my question is, so me and my partner discuss this quite a bit um, and I want to know who is winning that discussion. So... <laughs> Question is, um, which is more environmentally friendly, um, to have your body cremated or to be buried in a coffin? Ah, um, if you're buried in a coffin that is, say, made of cardboard uh, and you chuck a bit of water in there, that means it's easy for you to get eaten by the worms and ultimately to replenish the soil. But it's not always that clear because sometimes it takes a long time because the cardboard is made of a very impervious wood. With cremation, you're basically adding a tiny, tiny load of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere and you've got to provide the energy to burn it. I'm kind of... But then I don't know the ecological cost of making the cardboard and then digging the hole in the ground. So which one do you go with, Dr Vic? I'm, I'm leaning towards cremation. Okay, so just because I, I, you were the last person I spoke to, I'm leaning 51% in your favour and 45 <laughs> 49% the other way. Someone should Thanks, do some sort of study yeah. on this. That actually sounds really interesting as far yeah. as even like, you know, the type of cardboard box that it could be in, you know, because it's not very ornate, is it? You wouldn't want that in the, the hearse just kind of driving down the road. Ah, well, I've specifically asked that I get a cardboard box and they paint stars on it and, and, and spend nothing on um, my box but everything on a good party for everybody who turns up. Oh, <laughs> you just want the party. We got Lucy here from Newcastle. Dr Lucy, what's your question? Oh, hi, doctors. Um, so my question is when I was little and I bumped my arm or grazed my knee or whatever, my mum would say, oh, rub it better or give it a rub. Mm. And I was just wondering if that is, you know, scientifically a best evidence-based practice or if she was just, you know, distracting us from crying. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr Lucy, I don't know, but I'm guessing that there is. So I'm not um, a wounds specialist. and There are people who specialise in nothing but wounds. So on one hand, it does distract you by the so-called gate theory that in addition to the pain trying to get into your brain, you've got the nice feeling of being rubbed going into your brain. But separately from that, I, I reckon you could be improving the circulation in the area so that the 
good guys could get in. Now, mind you, if the problem was that there was a bad guy toxin in there, like from a funnel web spider, you wouldn't want it to spread. But in general, it would be good to improve the circulation. So I'm leaning ever so gently towards the there is there could be some signs, but please, wound specialists, come and help and save me. I don't know the answer for sure. Yeah, oh four three nine seven five seven triple five. Lucy, I even did this the other day. I was leaning over and I hit my head on the corner of my bed, right on that noggin spot, and I just started like, ugh just rubbing it just to make sure that, I don't know, it could lessen the pain or the mark that it would probably leave. Do you still yeah, do it's this? it's almost like a reflex. Yeah, it's almost like a reflex for me yeah. now to just give it a quick rub. Just like, oh, stop it. Stop it before it becomes bigger. Because you've, your siblings used to do that as well. If your sibling accidentally hit you in the, the head or whatever... They'd be like, sure, sure, just rub it better. Don't tell mum. And what about with the bleeding finger, just to shove it in your mouth, even if it belongs to one of your kids or family <laughs> members, and then just to um, say it's getting better, you know, out of your, growing better while you're sucking on it. I did that with uh, all of the kids. And I don't know why, but I did it. you got to do it. Gotta got to minimize it at the scene of the crime. We've got Darren here from Taree. Dr. Daz, what do you want to know? Dr. Daz. Basically, my question will cut it Cut it quick. Uh, with the total mass weight of the Earth, there must be a total weight, and surely the figure is rather big. Uh, but with the population growth, with all the uh, population growth and the weight of all of human existence, will that one day outweigh the total mass weight of the Earth? Ah, I can tell you definitely no. So um, here is the standard answer for the weight of the Earth. The weight of the Earth is an Avogadro number of ten kilogram bricks. The Avogadro number is the number six followed by 23 zeros, which is a really big number. So yeah. if you add another zero for the being 10 kilograms, that's 24 zeros and you call that kilograms. And that's the weight of the Earth. By the way, the Avogadro number, it relates to chemistry. It's a number of molecules of water in, say, 18 grams of water. And by coincidence, it's also roughly equal to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches on the planet, and also the number of stars in the universe. What a wonderful coincidence. Now, it turns yeah. out when we make humans, the, their atoms don't come from nowhere. They've been recycled from other atoms. So by simply having humans on the planet, and by the way, the total volume of all the humans is less than one cubic kilometre. So if you get a box a kilometre by a kilometre by oh, a yeah. kilometre, humans would only fill yeah. up about two-thirds of it, right, or three-quarters. So uh, that, that's us in the scale of the Earth. Um, and we are made from the earth. So it's not as though when a human is born, suddenly there's an extra four kilograms of atoms that come from nowhere. Those atoms came out of tomato plants and cows and eggs and whatever. And by the way, the overall weight of the earth is dropping by 50,000 kilometres a year, 50,000 kilograms a year, 50,000 tonnes. So each year, 40,000 tonnes of rocks fall on us, and each year about 90,000 tonnes of hydrogen and helium vanish into space, leaving us with an overall drop of about 40,000 40, tonnes per year. So the Earth is actually losing weight as the millennia, millions of years roll by. So thank you so much, Doctor. Thanks, Darren. Oh, thank you, Dr. Darren. <laughs> We've had someone actually text in saying, I'm a physio and I know why we rub injuries when we hurt ourselves. The sensory signals outrace the pain signals and decrease the pain. Daza out of Tassie, what's your question? Yeah, g'day doctors. Um, just a quick one, and obviously the Pfizer's the one on everyone's lips at the moment. I just wanted to know how 
and why does the shelf life of the Pfizer change once it's injected? Like, obviously, everyone's talking about the short shelf life that it's got before it's given to somebody. How, how or why does that change? Well, that's when a good question. Given, why, does it not, why does it not expire quickly once it's injected? Mm. Um, what you're injecting is mRNA. Did you do uh, DNA and biology at school? Oh, a long time ago. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay, so, so, so DNA is like a ladder of life. It's about the, it's a molecule looking like a ladder. It's got two side rails and about three billion rungs. And any three of those rungs are instructions to grab an amino acid. And then it can't do that by itself. It gets turned into a copy of itself, which is called messenger RNA, mRNA. So the Pfizer um, is a fairly fragile vaccine, which has to be kept at fairly low temperature, and then it gets injected into you. But they can't just put the mRNA straight into the muscles. No. So what they do is they put it into little hollow balls of fat so they can take it out of the ultra-cold storage and keep it at regular storage for a little while, but not too long. And then they inject these little balls of fat into your muscles. Actually, they go into the muscle cells themselves and they invade the area inside the muscle cell outside the nucleus. And they, the fat, the ball of fat breaks down and it gets swallowed. You know, I mean, it's just food, so your body's going to eat it. The ball of fat breaks down and then the messenger RNA is there floating in what's called the cytosol or the, the body of the cell outside the nucleus. And then it's got a life of a couple of days and it'll get destroyed by, because it's a slightly foreign, it'll get destroyed by whatever is there. But in those few days, it makes the spike proteins. The spike proteins then start your immune system on that two-week journey of making about a 1,000 different chemicals and cells. So once it's inside you, it's pretty well gone after about two or three days. Is, is that kind of answering your question, Dr. Dazza? Yeah, it does. So it's sort of... Um, so it's actually continuously changing once it goes inside. It's not, it's not as it is on the outside. It changes once it's, once it's inside as well. That's right. And, and, it, and so um, if you think about this sort of chain of little half rungs, um, so three yep. of them will make one amino acid. And so if you want to make the chemical called insulin or the chemical called collagen, that's got about 3,000 amino acids, each of them, inside them, which means so it's got 1,000 amino acids, so you need 3,000 rungs that get read. So three rungs give you one amino acid and then another amino acid and they get all put together in the right order and bingo, you've got either insulin or collagen or in this case, you get part of the spike protein and that sp spike protein will get destroyed but it hangs around for long enough for your immune system to say, I'm going to start making chemicals to fight that but you've got that two-week window roughly for it to do its job. Thanks, okay. Dazza. Let's get to one last question. We've got Emily here right. from Melbourne. Emily, what have you got? Hi, doctors. Um, so I've got this liquid iron supplement that's clear and it tastes disgusting. So I dilute it with juice or cordial. And I've noticed that when I dilute it into flavoured sparkling water, which is also clear, that mm -hmm. the liquid turns yellow. Mm. I'm just wondering what, what's happening then and if it means that the iron is not going to work anymore. Uh, is there any citric acid in that juice? Yes. Ah, it turns out that citric acid can increase your iron absorption. It can. Ooh, so if you take one gram of citric acid, it'll increase the amount of iron that you absorb by a factor of two or three. So it's not as though when you take iron in your diet or in tablets that all of it's absorbed. But if you happen to have citric acid at the same time, that increases the absorption.
Awesome. So, so it's probably a good thing. So would it still work in the sparkling water? Yes. No, the, so if it's just if it's oh. just plain sparkling water with no citric acid or flavouring, I've noticed it stays clear. But then, yeah, with the citric acid, it turns yellow. Ah, the sparkling water is slightly more acid and I haven't looked up um, whether that interferes with uh, the absorption of iron. Um, but the citric acid definitely helps. Up to one gram gives you three times the increased absorption. Oh, Dr. Carl, let's do this again next week. Maybe we'll get Tegan Taylor on board to answer some more coronavirus questions. We'll yeah, and I'll happens. see what other conspiracy theories I can believe depending on what movies <laughs> I watch in between now and then. Between now and then. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Science with Dr. Carl. And hey, why not leave a review? Leave a rating. Let us know what you think. We always love hearing from you. And if you want to put a question to Dr. Carl, be listening Thursdays live on Triple J from 9am. I'm Lucy Smith. We'll catch you next week.